The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your presence in our lives. We're so grateful that you were pleased to rescue us from our sin, to reveal yourself clearly to us, to make your gospel known to us through someone or through some means, and by your Holy Spirit, causing us to believe and trust in you personally to save us and to repent of our sins and to follow after you. Please, Father, cause us to rejoice in our salvation. Cause us to be constantly overwhelmed with all of the gratitude and gratefulness that we ought to have to you, not only for saving us, but for all of the blessings that you pour out on us every single day. We pray that you would help us make the most of this time that we have together tonight as a church, that as we consider how to uh, give reasons, good reasons for what we believe to be true, you would help us to do just that, help us to get better at providing reasons for the truthfulness of your gospel. Help us to do it for our own sake, uh, so that our own confidence in the truth might be uh, increased even more. Help us to do it for the sake of other believers for that same reason. And help us to do it, Lord, for the sake of all of those in our lives who don't believe that the Bible is your word and that the gospel is true. Help us, Father, to get better at this so that we can be the best messengers and defenders of your truth possible and so that we can seek to be persuasive uh, witnesses to the lost in our lives and that you might save them just as you saved us. Lord, all these things we ask for your glory. Help the teaching itself to be clear. Help us to uh, understand it and, uh, and by your grace to be able to use this uh, effectively ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, it's really good to see all of you guys again. I, uh, I enjoy this subject very much. I enjoy uh, talking about it with you guys very much. And uh, I really hope that, um, that this is a time uh, for you where you're able to uh, either learn things or, or uh, improve your knowledge of uh, things if you studied apologetics before uh, that will really be useful to you. And uh, like we've talked about, the goal of this uh, class is really uh, to give you, help, help give you, uh, the ability to give reasons for what you believe on your own, without anybody else, without any resources or notes or anything like that. Uh, and so with that said, as we continue on with our study tonight, if at any point, if at any point you have questions, you want some additional clarification, you want to go over something one more time, please just pause. We won't move forward. Let, let me know and we'll uh, try, to, try to get whatever it is uh, you know, that would be helpful to clarify, clarify it for you. So we're going to continue on with the first argument that we're learning for the existence of God tonight. Now, if you saw the email that I sent out, you'll notice that I asked uh, you to bring your handouts. I promised you I wouldn't be quizzing you, but I do want to see, did anybody actually bring their handouts tonight? Oh, Grandma did. Okay, very good. And Hazel, Mark, kind of, in a, in a mysterious way, digital. Oh, there we go. Okay, on his computer. And Andrea, okay, you guys all get brownie points then. Um, you, you know what would act, that would actually make brownie points better, is if you actually, if there was some kind of, you know, brownie standard, like a gold standard that, you know, they were tethered to. But, yeah, unfortunately they're not. But you guys did a good job. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly review um, 
the, uh, the points that we've covered on those previous handouts. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because I want this to hopefully be so, um, so second nature now that this uh, becomes boring, that it seems uh, uh, that, that, there's, that there's nothing here that you're not hearing that you don't already uh, know, um, know deeply uh, or, or, know, uh, or, or know cold. Um, and so if it's like that for you, that's great. And if not, hear some of these main points again and, uh, and be refreshed and hopefully have your understanding solidified a little bit. So remember, apologetics is all about giving reasons for what we believe. And a reason is a justification for a belief. If we say that we know something, what we're saying is that we have true justified beliefs. And thinking rationally means that we're thinking in accordance with truthful reasoning. Um, we talked about the relationship between faith and reason. Biblical faith is trust in God and trust in his word. And we learned a memory device, which is helpful to remember what biblical faith consists of. Remember, biblical faith is a furry cat, C-A-T. It consists of comprehension, agreement, and trust. We must comprehend the truth claims of the gospel. We must mentally agree with those truth claims. And we must personally trust in Christ as a result, or at least in response to, the gospel that we, um, that we acknowledge to be true. So comprehension, agreement, and trust. Where does reason come into all of that? Well, reason is supposed to be the B in between the A and the C. The B being the brain, reason. And reason comes in between those because reason is one of the uh, primary tools God has given us to discern and discover the truth. Now, apologetics is the business of giving reasons for what we believe. And it's a useful business for both believers and unbelievers alike. If we remember for believers, it helps increase our confidence in the truth claims that we already embrace and know to be true. And for unbelievers, it helps them come to agree with the truth claims of the gospel. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, if God is gracious to save them, those people he will make born again and they'll respond to the gospel the righteous way to respond, which is repenting of their sin and personally trusting in Christ. Now, one of our primary tools in apologetics are arguments. Arguments are where you have multiple propositions logically working together to support a conclusion. They come in two types, deductive and inductive arguments. Deductive arguments decrease in size as you move from the statements, the premises, to the conclusion. They go from more general statements to a more specific conclusion. They decrease in size, and their conclusion is decisive, 100% certain if everything is, is good. In an inductive argument, it's the opposite. The statements increase in size as you move towards the conclusion. The conclusion is broader. It's bigger than the statements, and the conclusion is indecisive, not 100% certain. What makes for a good argument? There's three ingredients. It must be valid, it must be sound, and it must be persuasive. By valid, we mean that all of the premises logically lead to the conclusion. By sound, we mean that the premises correspond to reality. And by persuasive, we mean that the premises are likely to be accepted by the people that we're trying to convince. Now, we also talked about truth. Truth, uh, there's a number of different views that people have on truth. The correct view of truth is what we call the correspondence view of truth, which is very simply that truth is that which corresponds to reality. And we talked about how truth is knowable, truth is absolute, and truth is real. If somebody says there is no truth, if somebody says truth can't be known, if somebody says truth is relative, all of those statements, like many false statements about truth, falls on its sword. 
uh, statements about truth that are false falls on its sword. So if somebody says there is no truth, you say, is that true? If somebody says truth can't be known, you say, how do you know that? If somebody says truth is relative, you ask, is that truth relative? Statements about truth that are false falls on its sword. Now, there are many different ways to go about proving that Christianity is true. We're learning what's called the classical approach. The classical approach involves two steps. You first prove that God exists, and then you prove that the true God is the Christian God. First prove that God exists, and then prove that the true God is the Christian God. Now, we're going to learn three arguments in this course. Uh, One is an argument from the existence of universe to the existence of God. One is an argument from the design that we observe in the universe to an intelligent designer, also to God. And one is an argument from the reality of objective morality, that there must be some kind of basis outside of us for objective morality, and that basis is God. We started learning an argument for the existence of God from the existence of the universe last time. We call these cosmological arguments. This particular type of cosmological arguments, uh, if, if you'll remember, there's many. This is called the Kalam cosmological argument, and we're going to continue learning that tonight. After that summary of all of the main points that we've learned thus far in our, uh, in our apologetics uh, training, session, um, training sessions, any questions on anything that I just discussed? Oh, yeah. Knowable, real, and absolute. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So cosmological arguments work from the existence of the universe to demonstrate that because the universe exists, God must exist. There's many different ways to do this. But the one that we're learning hinges on the fact that the universe had a beginning, that the universe hasn't always existed. And because the universe had a beginning and everything that begins must have a cause, the universe must have a cause. That's the argument that we're learning. And last time, we discussed how to demonstrate, how to prove that the universe has a beginning. We looked at two scientific evidences and one philosophical evidence. There's one more that if we have time At the end of our session tonight, I'll throw in as a bonus evidence. But the two scientific evidences we discussed, um, um, these are ones I don't expect you to remember. I don't want you to remember. Um, I just share these with you so you can be more familiar with some of the additional evidences out there for the fact the universe had a beginning. Um, But these are two scientific evidences that Craig focuses on in his apologetic. One is the expansion of the universe. If you remember the fact that the universe is expanding, that space itself is expanding, is one of the current scientific phenomena that uh, underlies the Big Bang Theory. Uh, One of the reasons why it's the case is because if you extrapolate that expansion back, what you get to is a uh, a beginning point. If you reverse that expansion process, you get back to a point of infinite density, infinite pressure, etc. The other evidence that we talked about has to do with the second law of thermodynamics, The basic idea is that the universe is running out of usable energy, and if the universe has always existed, surely it would have run out of usable energy by now, in which case none of us would be here. No life would exist at all. But clearly, that hasn't happened. Therefore, the universe must must not have existed for all... uh, There must not be an infinite past 
Um, the universe has only existed for a finite amount of time. So those are the two scientific evidences we discussed. Again, just want you to be familiar with that. This is the one that I really want you to learn. There's two philosophical evidences for the fact that the universe has a finite past. The first is relatively simple. It's that an infinite distance can't be crossed. Right? An infinite distance can't be crossed. We gave the analogy of a staircase, an infinite staircase, where you look ahead of you, there's an infinite number of stairs ahead of you. You look behind you, there's an infinite number of stairs behind you. And if I'm standing at the very top and you start walking right now, are you ever going to get to me? No, you're never going to get to me, right? And why aren't you going to get to me? Because no matter how far you go, there's always another step left. Not only that, there's always an infinite number of steps left, right? Even if you have forever to walk, you're never, ever going to get to me. Now, here's the problem, right? If I'm at the top and you can't get to me because there's an infinite distance between us, how could, get, how could you get to where you are? There's an infinite number of stairs before you, right? The problem is you can't. You can't get to where you are. Now, what does this have to do with time? We'll just change the steps out for days, right? If my current step is today and the step before me is yesterday, and the step before that is the day before that, we can ask ourselves, well, if there were an infinite number of days before this one, would we ever have gotten to this one? And the answer is no, right? An infinite distance can't be crossed. An infinite distance can't be traversed. We know that if we're here today, there couldn't have been an infinite number of days before this one. The same way you couldn't get to me, because there's an infinite number of steps between us, we could have never gotten to today if there are an infinite number of steps before this one, an infinite number of days before this one. Uh, the stair analogy is helpful. There might be other analogies that you can think of that basically communicate the same thing. But are there any questions on the first philosophical evidence and possibly the only one that we'll learn, the, on the only one that I want you to learn of all of these? Yeah. Go ahead, Are you saying that that shows that there was a beginning mm -hmm. and then it shows there's going to be an end? It doesn't show that there's going to be an end. That's a, good, that's a good question. But it does show that there must have been a beginning. If we can't cross an infinite distance, then there couldn't have been an infinite distance before us. Because if, if there was, then that would, that would mean that the universe would have had to cross that. Something that's not possible to do. <laughs> yeah, Tina. Yeah. Just come up with this analogy. It's out there. So, do you know what their most common counter argument is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th thank you so much. That's the next thing we're going to discuss. But before I share some of the objections to it, I want you to take just one minute on your own, maybe two, try and break this yourself. Okay. Try your best to break this. If this is a, a weapon that you're going to take out, and you're going to try and use this to fight for what you believe, you want to make sure it doesn't jam on you when you're trying to use it, right? So 
Give it a test run right now. Do your best to destroy this somehow. I'll give you one or two minutes. Try and defeat it on your own. All right, let's hear. Anybody have an objection to this? You don't have to be confident that it's right. I promise you it's not. But just give it, th throw out something that you think might work. You all think it works. Okay. Soul. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah, that that's a, a different kind of uh, that's a different kind of challenge. It's not an objection, obviously, to any particular argument as much as it is an apathy, like you said, just a, a general yeah. disinterest. In, uh, in, in whatever you're sharing, right? right yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different ways to battle that. It really depends on, you know, on, on, uh, on, on the specific person, obviously. But um, the, uh, one of the most important things to do is to, try to, um, is to try to get them to care about it, showing them the importance of these things. I was actually, uh, I, I forget who it was I was talking about this with um, uh, recently, but... Yeah, it came up the matter of, uh, of, of, you know, not really caring about these things. And uh, I think I talked about how there's a difference between um, not caring about something and something mattering, right? I might not care about the law of gravity, but if I walk up to the top of this building and, you know, step off the edge, it's going to matter, right? I might not care about how it works, but it matters for me. It matters for my well-being, and in the same way, somebody might not care about whether or not God exists, but it's not hard to show them that it really matters if he exists. It matters for you not only now, but if he does exist, one day you're going to stand before him and possibly face an eternity in hell for how you've lived here. So that's one way to do it. Another way is to ask them questions to... Yeah, or that would probably come first, or yeah, when it comes back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, deconstructing their worldview, too, is also really helpful to whatever they feel secure in. 
um, you know, whatever beliefs they feel secure in, show them that those beliefs are not nearly as stable and secure as they think they are. Um, those are just a couple of, of things. Yeah, Tina. Help make it matter. You have to help make it matter. The only way to do that at this point is to skip right over to the gospel and offering the prayers. That's what I remember most. Mm. When I would get to that place, the one thing I remember is when they would just drop it and just share the gospel and offer the prayers to me. And I would refuse every single time. But I remembered that after I came to Christ. Yeah, so thank you, Tina. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, and as a, as a plug for the public theology show, too, the new evangelism activity that we're doing, um, when we used to go out and do evangelism at the farmer's market, we would oftentimes try to bribe people, for lack of a better word, to come over by offering them things like free donuts and water. And oftentimes, as a result, they would not really be interested in talking about spiritual things. Um, but one of the cool things about uh, the way that, that um, the evangel- uh, evangelism activity that we're doing now is um, you know, since we have a sign set up that poses a, uh, an important worldview question up front, the people that come up to talk to us are people that want to discuss those things. Um, so that's something that's been very nice about um, the, uh, the current venue that we have for doing evangelism right now. Our dialogues are with people that are at least interested in discussing the question. So, yeah, for, for what it's worth. Yeah. So come out sometime. Oh. Um, so any, any objections to this argument that you can think of? I'll give you one. So this is... Uh, um, one that Craig discussed in his book, and, uh, and, and this is the way it goes. Um, from every point, every, any defined point, you can get to another point, right? From any step on this stair, staircase, if you, pick, if you pick another step ahead of me, I'll get there eventually. It doesn't matter how far. 
any step you pick on the staircase, I'll get to. And so if that's true of every single individual step on the staircase, I'll get there eventually. Then an infinite distance can be crossed. If it's true that any distance, any single stair that you pick out on this infinite staircase, any single stair you pick out, I'll be able to get to eventually if I have enough time. Therefore, since every single individual stair you can get to, you can cross the whole thing. That's the objection. That's one objection. Does that, did I explain it clearly? Let, let, let me use his words, okay? His words, from every past point, we can reach the present. Pick any point in the past. Any specific point you pick, you'll be able to get here eventually. And so if that's true of any point, then that means it's not impossible to cross an infinite distance. Right? Yeah, but from that next point you can get to here, and from that next point you can get to here, and from that next point you can get to here. So for every individual point, you'll be able to get here. Um, the reason why that's not true is because it commits a logical fallacy. Uh, it's the fallacy of composition. And basically, uh, the way the fallacy works is that um, properties of a part, qualities of a part, are not necessarily properties of a whole. Properties of a part are not necessarily properties of the whole. Here's what I mean. This is the analogy that he gives. I think it's good. If you have an elephant, you can chop it up into tiny little parts. You can say each part is light. That means the whole elephant is light. Is that true? If each part of the elephant is light, does that mean that the whole elephant is light? No, it doesn't. Right? What's true of the individual parts is not true of the whole, necessarily. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. In the case of the staircase analogy that we're using, it's true that any specific step you pick, you'll be able to get to today from. What's not true is that you can cross an infinite number of steps. Just because it's true of, in, of each individual part doesn't mean it's true of the whole thing. It's not true that you can cross an infinite number of steps. An infinite distance cannot be traversed. Um, what's true of each individual step is not true of the whole staircase, in other words. Does that make sense? Did I explain that clearly? Kind of? Okay. One other objection. I won't go into this one as deep. This is the most sophisticated objection, definitely the strongest objection to this argument. Um, I think I had alluded to this last time. This works on a common sense view of time. If we believe that time is actually a succession of moments, one after the other after the other, and that only the present truly exists, only the present moment exists, then this argument works. If that's the way that time is, then this argument works. That's the understanding that most people have of time. Most people understand time to be a succession of moments in which only the present is real. The past existed, but it doesn't exist anymore. The future does not exist yet. Only the present exists. Now, the interesting thing is that that's probably not the view of time that most physicists have today. Many physicists would embrace what's called a B theory of time. And basically, the way a B theory of time works is that each Nice marker. So on a, on a normal view of time, what 
sometimes referred to as an A theory of time. Only the present is real. Here's the present. That moment's gone. Now here's the present. That moment's gone. Now here's the present. That moment's gone. Here's the present. Only that moment exists. Right? But on a B theory of time, all moments are equally real. The past is just as real as the present, which is just as real as the future. All moments exist simultaneously. And the reason, well, the, the reason why this analogy doesn't work is because it's not adding one step after another after another. It's all moments exist at once. Now, the vast majority of people that you talk to are not going to hold to this view. They're not going to be aware that it exists. So you don't really need to worry about encountering this too often. Um, if you were to encounter it, there's another philosophical evidence that works regardless of whether you hold to an A theory of time or a B theory of time. If we have enough time tonight, no pun intended, I'll share that with you. Um, but there's also philosophical reasons to doubt this particular theory of time. Um, not the least of which is because it essentially makes our experience of time an illusion. That our experience of time is a, uh, it's, a it's, it's nothing more than a, than a product of our consciousness. It's not actually real. Um, and that comes with some philosophical problems, um, which I, 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 I probably shouldn't get into that right now. Um, Yeah, that, that all moments are, uh, yeah, that all moments exist equally. Um, yeah, just because we're experiencing something as present doesn't mean there's anything, doesn't mean that presentness is an objective feature of the universe, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so sometimes a B theory of time is called a static theory of time. All points in time are equally real, regardless of whether we perceive them as past, present, or future. Um, and that our perception of things as past or present is nothing more than a subjective experience of human beings. Um, again, this is not the common sense view of time, um, and I don't think it's the correct view of time either. Uh, I'm wondering, so does anybody want to know more about why this isn't true? I don't want to spend time on something that isn't, isn't really helpful to you. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll circle back at the end and explain why I don't think that this is a... Um, a uh, a sustainable theory of time, but um, maybe one thing that is important for you to recognize is that this is not what most people you encounter are going to believe, and even if it is, there's another philosophical evidence um, for the fact that the universe had a beginning that does not depend on any particular view of time. It works regardless of whether time is static, like on a B theory of time, or whether time um, works more and uh, is, is more like we yeah, commonly think of it to be. Any questions on that? Hope I didn't make it more confusing. That's definitely the strongest objection, though. That essentially our perception of time is an illusion. All right, I'll get back to that maybe, maybe in the end. Because I do want to uh, get to how we can demonstrate that God exists from this. All right, so is this first premise sound that the universe started to exist? Remember, a good argument is a valid argument. 
it's a sound argument, and the people we're trying to convince will likely accept those premises. So is this premise sound? Do we have good evidence for believing that the universe started to exist? I think so. Good scientific evidence, good philosophical evidence. Again, this is the only one that, uh, that I want you to know. And I think that in an, that argument in and of itself is compelling enough to demonstrate the universe had a beginning, even if somebody's not familiar with the scientific evidences, for example. Um, all right, so the second premise is the one that we're going to learn next. And if you'll, you can start using the new handouts that I gave you now. Um, I'm going to change the framework that I want you to learn. And you can have a chance to write in the correct formulation of this argument um, on the top of your new page. So the first premise, which is the one we just learned how to defend, is that the universe had a beginning. You know how to prove that now. Myrna, are there two ends in beginning? Yes, there are. And the second is that everything that had a beginning had a cause. And so the conclusion, as you might expect, is that therefore the universe had a cause. This is a valid argument. You can see how these two statements logically lead to this one. And I believe this is a sound argument. We've already seen good evidence that this premise corresponds to reality. Now all we need to ask is whether this present premise corresponds to reality, because if it does, the conclusion necessarily follows. And as we'll see tonight, it's very easy to demonstrate that whatever caused the universe must be God. So... Let's consider the second premise together. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. By the way, this is not Craig's formulation of the argument. This is Norman Geisler's formulation of the argument. And I think it's better. I'm almost certain it's better, actually, than the one that I had given you previously. Um, it's also only two statements instead of three, so it should be a little bit easier to learn, too. Um, but the second premise, everything that had a beginning had a cause. That might be an intuitive statement for most people. Something can't begin Something can't happen without a cause, right? This is based on a philosophical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. Maybe you've heard the Latin phrase, R.C. Sproul says the Latin phrase, ex nihilo nihil fit, right? Out of nothing, nothing comes. Something cannot come from nothing. Um, let's do this. So let's take a moment to define nothing. What is Nothing. And don't just be silent. Silence is not nothing. Silence is still a thing. What is nothing? What's that? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> it sounded good. I couldn't hear it, though. <laughs> oh, not a... Okay. <laughs> in Spanish. Uh, anyone in English, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so absence of all things. Yeah, that's not bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, so if there's energy, it's not nothing. And this is something to be careful of. Sometimes if you're talking about, talking with an atheist who's a little well-versed in science, sometimes the word nothing is thrown around very loosely, and scientists will talk about how the universe came from nothing. Well, they don't really mean nothing. A vacuum's not nothing. An infinitely small point is not nothing. When you hear scientists talk about that, sometimes they don't really mean nothing in the true sense of the word nothing. So what is nothing? A dictionary definition, I'll give this to you. You can write this down. It is no thing. Shocking. Uh, the better definition, though, is not anything. Nothing is... Just write not anything. Profound, right? Yes. The absence of everything, not anything. Yeah, so... Um, I, uh, I like the way Craig refers to it. He calls it a term of universal negation. Universal negation. Negates um, or uh, anything that you can imagine is negated. It's not anything. Now, nothing is not a thing. Sometimes we can talk about it as a thing. And here's an example that he gives that is, that's helpful to you. Somebody says that, um, you know, I, uh, I had nothing for lunch. Your response to them isn't, you know, oh, how did that taste, right? Nothing's not a thing. If someone says, I had nothing for lunch, what they mean is they didn't have any lunch, right? So nothing's not an actual thing. It's not anything. Um, and so when somebody says that nothing caused the universe, they shouldn't by that mean that nothing is some kind of entity that caused the universe. What they mean is that the universe did not have a cause, the universe was not caused by anything. That's what they mean. Now let's consider that for a moment. Is that actually possible? Is it possible for the universe, or anything for that matter, just think about this, is it possible for the universe to come into existence without a cause? Is that possible? Does everything with a beginning have to have a cause? Some of you are nodding your heads. Why, why do you think so? Why is that? I think you're right. Why is that? Yeah, something has to start it. Okay. Even the car, you've got to have a starter to start the car. Sure. So everything has to have... There's got to be some, some kind of... Yeah. Something that causes it. Yeah. A cause and effect. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so atheists will say they believe that the universe had a beginning, they'll say that the universe popped into existence uncaused out of nothing. Came to exist, but nothing caused it to exist. Yes, yeah, Sonia? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example, Sonia. So every single thing in our experience testifies to the fact that if something happens, there was a cause for it happening. Right? Everything that happens has a cause. That's what our experience unanimously testifies to. 
That's one of the most fundamental principles of science, that there actually are causes for the things that we see taking place in the world. So our experience testifies to it. But this principle is actually true as a philosophical principle, regardless of what our experience testifies to or not. Can anybody figure out how that might be the case? Anybody have any guesses on how that might be the case? So this is true as a philosophical principle, regardless of what our experience testifies to. I'll put it in the sounds of a song from the sound of music. You can put this on your, this is what I have meant to be written on your page. Some of you might know this song. One of the lyrics, I couldn't play it or sing it if, uh, if, you, if you wanted me to. Not that anybody wants me to. Um, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Right? Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. I just want you to memorize that and remember that. If you can remember that, you'll be good to go with this second premise. What comes from not anything? Not anything. <laughs> right? Nothing comes from nothing. Not anything comes from not anything. Something that does not exist does not have the power to come to be without something else. Specifically, something that doesn't exist can't come to be unless there is something that does exist and that has the power to bring it into existence. This is a philosophical principle. And basically what it means is that if something comes to exist, it must have been brought into existence by something else. I know this might sound very obvious and very simple, but this is an important um, premise. The argument doesn't work without it. Um, something cannot come into existence from nothing. It can't come into existence without any cause. Um, which means that everything that does come into existence, everything that has a beginning, that starts to exist, had a cause. Right? Because nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. You have that written down. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Consider this. What if there ever was absolutely nothing? It's a hard thing to imagine. There's nothing. Not even God. What if there was ever a time when there was absolutely nothing? What would that mean? There would still be absolutely nothing. Right? If there, were ever, if there was ever a time where that was, a, where that was the case, nothing would ever happen. <laughs> right? We wouldn't be here to discuss it. That's exactly right. There was nothing that would still be nothing. Yep. That's exactly right. All right, um, nothingness means there's not even the potential for something. Um, there's no power or ability for anything else to happen, for anything else to come to exist. Um, so yes, while this is a philosophical principle, as Sonia uh, uh, said, our experience also unanimously testifies to this reality. All right, um, I want to give you a chance to try to break this one. Take a minute, try to break this. Do your best to defeat it somehow.
Any possible objections? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, there's really not good objections to this. Um, some might try to say, well, you can't prove it for sure. Um, some might try to say that, you know, that in the quantum realm, sometimes things look like they happen that aren't caused, um, but that's still not, uh, that's still not a refutation of this principle. Um, things are happening because some other things exist, even if we don't know what the cause is. It's not something coming from nothing, with nothing literally being not anything, right? Um, this is a, what some people consider to be a self-evident principle. Um, some might call it a first principle. Um, it's probably one that the average person will not struggle with very much. <laughs> so, um, in, the, in your conversations, the, uh, if somebody doesn't agree that the universe, if, if somebody's going to doubt one of these premises, it's probably going to be this first one that they're struggling with. Any questions on that second one? No questions. All right. Well, what that means is that if this argument is valid, if this part plus this part equals this part, because this is what type of argument? Is this deductive versus inductive? Deductive or inductive? Yeah. Deductive. That means that the conclusion is decisive or indecisive? Decisive. 100% certainty that the conclusion is true if the premises are also true. We have strong evidence to believe the universe had a beginning. It's a fundamental philosophical principle that something does not come from nothing. Everything that begins must have a cause. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Well, that's great, but how do we know that the cause is God or anything that even remotely resembles God? That's the next step of the argument. It's a very fun step. We're going to go there right now, but before that, does everyone know how to get to the fact the universe had a cause? Everyone on board with this. If you're not, pause, stop. We'll take time to review, solidify anything that you need. All good? All right. So how do we know that the cause is God? Oh, wow, this thing is still up there. Take a minute to think about that yourself. What could we learn? That's brutal. What could we learn about the cause by thinking perhaps about the way the universe is? Just ask yourself that. Yeah, hope, hopefully you guys will be okay with an imperfect background here. All right. Let's do this. First of all, what is the universe? The universe. There it is. You're all living in it. Anyone want to try and Define it in some kind of concise way. The universe is all of space 
and time and everything in it. The universe is all of space and time and everything in it. Now let's think about that for a second. If the universe had a beginning, then that means that space had a beginning. Time had a beginning. Everything else in the universe had a beginning, right? So whatever caused the universe existed prior to space and time. Whatever caused the universe existed prior to space and time. I'm going to draw another circle outside of the universe. This circle is the cause of the universe. And since the cause existed at least causally prior to the universe, we can infer that the cause must be spaceless and timeless. It transcends space and it transcends time. It is not limited by space and it is not limited by time because it existed prior to both of those things. Everybody got that? Obviously, whatever caused the universe cannot be limited by what the universe is because it existed before it, right? So God must be outside of space, outside of time, so to speak. He does not experience a succession of moments in his beings when we talk about him being timeless. Um, and when we think about everything that's in the universe, all of matter, for example, if something is not limited by space, if it's not extended in space, then it's not a material being. It can't be a physical being, right? All of physical reality exists. The universe encompasses all of physical reality. That means whatever existed prior to the universe is not physical. It's non-physical. You can put that down here. Other words for this would be immaterial. It's not a material being. It's not made of matter, right? It existed prior to matter. And I think Craig would say that the fact that it's immaterial is entailed from the fact that it's timeless. It can't change. And also perhaps from the fact that it's spaceless. It's not extended in space. It's a non-physical being. Another word for that would be spiritual. Non-physical or spiritual. So we already know that whatever caused the universe is not bound by space, it's not bound by time, and it's non-physical. That's a lot. That's a lot that we get just by thinking about what the cause of the universe must be. Now we can get more because timelessness actually entails a few other things. If something is timeless... That means it does not experience in its being a succession of moments, as 
Wayne Gruden puts it. I think that's a helpful way to put it. It does not experience in its being a succession of moments, one moment after another. Do you think a timeless being can change? Can a timeless being change? If a being doesn't experience a succession of moments in itself, then it can't change, right? Because in order to change, you need at least how many moments? <laughs> you need at least two, right? A before and an after. A timeless being cannot change. So timelessness, and you can draw an arrow down here, timelessness means that the being must be unchangeable. Sometimes in theology we use the word immutable. It cannot change because there are no succession of moments in its being and in order to change you need at least two moments. So the cause of the universe is unchangeable. But timelessness also leads us to something else that's very interesting. Not only must this cause be unchangeable, But this cause, well, I'll ask you first. Do you think that a timeless being could have a beginning? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, so, so think about this. Was there ever a moment before this timeless being? If, there, if it doesn't experience a succession of moments in its being, then that means there was no moment prior to its existence. There was no moment before it. No moment where it did not exist because it is not confined to moments. That means that it was a beginningless being. Beginningless. Another word for that is eternal. Always existed. By the way, I have a picture of a bathtub there. You might be saying, why is there a bathtub? It's because it's T-U-B. T is followed by U and B. Or perhaps you can say B and U follow T. What does timelessness lead to? It leads to unchangeableness and beginningless. That's a lot. That's a lot to learn about the cause, the cause of the universe. But the good news is that there's more. There's even more we can learn about this cause. But before we move on, is everyone good on these five attributes? These are important attributes. If the universe is all of space and time and everything in it, then whatever caused the universe and existed prior to the universe cannot be bound by space and cannot be bound by time. It is spaceless and timeless. And because it is spaceless and timeless, it must be non-physical. It must be non-material. All physical things 
all material things at least, either change or are extended in space. And if it's timeless, we can also infer that it must be unchangeable because you need to have at least two moments to change before and then after. If there is no succession of moments in its being, then it is not possible for it to change. And it is also beginningless because, again, if there's no succession of moments in its being, then there was no moment prior to its being. It's always existed. It is eternal. Pretty cool, huh? Again, just by thinking about what the universe is, we can infer a great deal about what the cause must be like. In the uh, succession of these, these premises, I know you're going to go into more, can there ever be more than one beginningless entity? So let's, let's talk about that. Oh, so, so yeah, so the, you can look on the next page now. Um, there's three more attributes, at least three more that we can get from this. Um, You'll see another acronym there. Up with two P's. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't come up with something more creative. I really am. I mean, I wish that there was a better acronym for this, but look up to see more. That's what you got. Look up to see more. UPP. U, the first U, it must be uncaused. We're going to look up. We're going to see more. Uncaused. You say, well, how can we get that? Well, the answer is because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. You can't go on forever asking what caused that cause and what caused the thing before it and what caused the thing before it and what caused the thing before it. You can go back a long ways. You can go back as long as you like, but eventually you're going to have to get to something that wasn't caused itself. Otherwise, if you go back for infinity and there never is a first cause, then none of the other causes in the chain could have come to be either. So an infinite regress, I think I have it there. Yeah, since you can't have an infinite regress, it must be uncaused. Another word, a more theologically accurate word for uncaused is self-existent. It exists in and of itself by necessity of his own nature. God was not caused to be by anything else. He exists because of his necessary nature. He necessarily exists. So anyway, uncaused. The other one, P, this is an obvious one, powerful. You say, well, how do we know that the cause is powerful? Because it created the entire universe. <laughs> That's how we know it's powerful. Look at the universe. Whatever caused that must be unimaginably powerful. More powerful than our brains could even come close to comprehending. So extremely powerful. And then the last one, perhaps most incredibly, personal. Now before we talk about how we can know if this cause is personal, I want to give you a chance to try to figure it out. Oh man, I just realized I, I printed on there a quote that explains how we know. So don't read that quote. <laughs> try, to, try to figure it out on your own. Try to figure it out on your own. How do you know that a personal being caused the universe? Can we know that? 
using only philosophy? Is it possible? I mean, even if we don't get to personal, this is still, this is still huge, right? Already we know naturalism can't be true. We know that there must be more that exists than the physical world because if the physical world came into being at some point, then whatever caused the physical world to be can't itself be physical. It can't be bound by space or time. It must be non-material. That in of itself is huge. Naturalism is false. But how do we know that this isn't just some impersonal, non-physical entity that brought the universe into being? It's definitely spaceless. It's definitely timeless and it's non-physical and because it's timeless it can't change and it didn't have a beginning and it was uncaused because you can't have an infinite regress of causes and it was very powerful because it caused the whole universe but an important attribute of God is that he's personal right is there any way that we can know just from philosophy that the cause must have been personal any guesses Yes, Sonia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually, um, yeah, so, so what you said is exactly right. Um, and uh, that's why when we talked about, um, you know, what makes for a good argument, um, you know, one of the things that makes for a good argument is that it's persuasive in the sense that people who don't already agree with the conclusion might agree with the premise. And I think that some people might actually agree with what you said, even if they don't already believe in a personal God. Like you said, it's very easy for us to, uh, to, to see, you know, um, marks of, uh, of, you know, personal handiwork in creation because, because we believe that. Um, but there is an argument that, you know, that effects resemble their causes, Right, and if there are personal beings in the world, if we observe things like beauty and you know diverse kinds and stuff like that, like you were talking about, Sonia, um, well, since cause, since effects you know typically resemble their causes, um, that can be at least good evidence that we might have a personal cause in our hands. Um, so yeah, thank you, uh, thank you for sharing that. Here's a, here's one way that uh, I think is very compelling. Um, and, uh, and Craig actually traces this back to, um, to the Islamic philosopher uh, Al-Ghazali. That's the one who's being mentioned there in that quote from an article uh, that he published on his site. Um, think about it like this. We know that the cause of the universe is unchanging. We know that the cause is unchanging. And I might... Um, read a little bit from, uh, from the quote here, but I don't, I'm not going to read it in its entirety, so don't, don't, uh, don't read down yourself. But you don't need to take notes on this. This is all, all there for you. Um, if this 
cause has never changed and it's existed forever, then that means that whatever conditions brought the universe into existence have always existed too. Just think about that for a second. If the cause has never changed and it's existed for all of eternity, then that means that the conditions for bringing the universe about have also existed for all of eternity because the cause has never changed. Whatever conditions brought it to be are the only conditions it's ever had and it's had them forever, which means the universe should also have existed forever. It's okay if that didn't, if it didn't get through the first time. We'll, we'll, we'll try it again. Um, so if we have an eternal cause, the effect should also be eternal. An eternal cause that never changes will have an eternal effect. An eternal cause wouldn't need to have an eternal effect if it could change. Maybe for a very long time. There was no time, but just kind of let that slide for now. Maybe for a very long time, the conditions for bringing about the universe weren't there, and then it changed, and now the conditions for bringing about the universe were there, and so now the universe exists, and it hasn't existed forever because it, it came into being. Um, if the cause, though, is unchanging, if it's unchanging, then that means that whatever conditions brought the universe to be, whatever caused the universe to be, has always existed. That means that the universe should have always existed too. But that's a problem because we know that the universe hasn't always existed. How do we know that? Well, we learned two scientific evidences. We learned one philosophical evidence. There's another that we probably won't learn, but we could eventually if you want to. Um, the odd thing is we know we have an eternal cause on our hands but we don't have an eternal effect. We have a temporal effect. By temporal, I just mean an effect that's, that's uh, constrained by time. An effect that's limited. That, uh, that has a finite, that's existed for a finite period of time. How can we have an eternal cause produce a non-eternal effect? By the way, that's the fill in the blank there. We know it must be a personal being since an eternal cause produced a non-eternal effect. Okay, here's the analogy that Craig gives that I have in there on the quote for you. Water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. Right? If the conditions are right, if the temperature is zero degrees, any water will freeze under those conditions, right? If the temperature is right, the conditions are right, the water will freeze. 
let's say that it's been zero degrees for all of eternity. How long will the water have been frozen for? All of eternity. If the temperature never changed, it was always zero degrees, the water would always be frozen because the conditions for water freezing always existed. Make sense? Now let's swap out water freezing and universe starting. If the conditions for starting the universe have always existed, then what would that mean about the universe? How long has the universe been around? Always too, right? If the conditions for water freezing, zero degrees temperature, have always existed, the water will always be frozen. If the conditions for starting the universe have always existed, the universe will have always existed. I'll say that again. The conditions for starting the universe have always existed, then the universe would have always existed. If what causes the universe has always existed, then that effect will have always existed too, assuming that the cause never changed, which we know it didn't. Ask questions. I, I can tell that this isn't, it's not getting through. It, that's okay. That's okay. I know that this is hard. This, I, I know it might sound like, you know, just because I'm talking about this fluently right now, the first time, you know, I wrestle with these things like this too, it's not, it, t- it takes some time to kind of get into your head. And w- once you have it in your head, it, it clicks. Um, but l- let's, let's get it there. L- let's get it to click. So what questions do you have? What needs to be clarified? Now, you don't, you don't know yet how this gets to a personal being. That's okay. I'm going to show you. It's very easy from here. But we just got to get this step. Do we understand why an eternal cause, if it's unchanging, should have an eternal effect? Do we get that? Okay. An eternal cause that's never changed should have produced an eternal effect. Raise your hand and ask a question if you're not following that part. The problem is, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sonia. Yeah, good question. So this is going to demonstrate that whatever caused the universe must be an impersonal being. We haven't gotten to that yet. All we're trying to do right now is to show that an eternal cause that's never changed should have produced an effect that is also eternal. If whatever caused the universe has always existed and it's never changed, then that means that the conditions for bringing about the universe have always existed too. And that means that the universe should have always existed along with it, right? The universe should have always existed too. The only problem is the universe has not always existed. That's the problem. Um, and we know that again for all the evidences that we just covered demonstrating that the universe had a beginning. So, so the question is, how can, how can a cause that's never changed but existed forever 
result in a universe that has not existed forever? Well, you say God wanted it. That, that's, that's the right answer. Um, I'll tell you the answer and we'll work on this. So the universe has not existed forever. It's existed for a limited amount of time. But yet, whatever brought the universe to be has existed forever and it's never changed. So you say, oh, that's weird. If the temperature has always been zero degrees, then the water should have always been frozen. How is it possible for the temperature to always be zero degrees, but for the water to not have always been frozen? How is it possible for the cause to have always existed and to have never changed, but for the effect to not have always existed too? The only answer that makes sense is will. Decision. Choice involved. Yeah, William, there you go. How come an eternal and unchanging cause does not have an eternal result, does not have an effect that's always existed too? It's because that eternal, unchanging cause made a decision to bring a universe into being. Made a decision to start space and time and everything else in it. Let's read bottom part of the quote. Um, it says, this is in the middle. If you look on the right-hand side in the middle. Why did the universe come into being only a finite amount of time ago? Why isn't it as permanent as its cause? Its cause has existed forever and it's never changed. Ghazali maintained that the answer to this problem is that the first cause must be a personal being endowed with freedom of the will. His creating the universe is a free act which is independent of any prior determining conditions. So his act of creating can be something spontaneous and new. Freedom of the will enables one to get an effect with the beginning from a permanent, timeless cause. Just underline that statement. Freedom of the will enables one to get an effect with the beginning from a permanent, timeless cause. Thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. How do we know the cause of the universe was personal? Because we have an eternal cause producing a non-eternal effect. We have a permanent, unchanging cause producing a non-permanent effect. How do you explain that? Well, if it's not a personal being, it's some permanent, unchanging thing, then that means that the universe should have been permanent too. But the universe is not permanent. It's existed for a finite amount of time. That means that the only way to make sense of how that could happen is if this permanent, unchanging being 
somehow has the ability to make decisions, somehow has the ability to choose to do something new. And whenever we talk about choice, whenever we talk about decision, whenever we talk about will, we're talking about a personal being, right? A personal being, a personal cause. Wow, so look at that. You can really learn a lot about what caused the universe by thinking through things a little bit. Again, this does not require an acceptance of the Bible as God's word. An unbeliever who does, not, who, does, who does not accept the same scriptures which already teach us all these things can come to these exact same conclusions by simply thinking about the world in a reasonable way. Taking it from the top, the universe had a beginning. We know it had a beginning because there couldn't have been an infinite number of days before this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten here. The universe had a beginning and everything that begins to exist had a cause. Something cannot come from nothing. Something can only come from something. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, which means that if the universe began to exist, then the universe had a cause. And what can we learn about this cause? Well, if the universe is all of space and time and everything else in it, then whatever caused the universe must exist beyond space and beyond time because it existed prior to those things. It must be spaceless and it must be timeless. And those mean it must also be non-physical. And if it's timeless, that means it can't change. And if it's timeless, that means it has no beginning. It must have also been an uncaused being because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. It must be an extremely powerful being because it created the entire universe. And it must also be a personal being because what we have is an eternal unchanging cause resulting in a non-eternal effect. The only way to explain that is if the cause somehow has the ability to make decisions, to choose to do something new, has a will, a personal being. That is the first argument that we will learn for the existence of God and probably the most involved, probably the most complex, the most philosophically sophisticated. So if you've gotten through this one, the other two should be easier for you. But this is a very, um, this is probably one of my favorite ones to use, probably the ones I use most often um, in going out in the college campuses. Uh, and for people that are willing to, um, you know, to think about things, you can get to a lot of different attributes of God through this one argument. Eight attributes, actually, of God. Um, some of the other arguments, they get you other attributes like God being you know, a moral being, uh, the standard of morality, or God being you know, an intelligent being. Um, but, uh, but one of the reasons why I like the cosmological argument is because you can get a lot of great stuff out of it, and, uh, and it's pretty airtight um, and, uh, and, and fairly easy to defend to if you know some of the you know, common objections to it. So, questions, objections, Tina? Uh, kind of. So I understand. I guess my question is like, if we 
this does appeal to them. And then they turn around and they go back to the religion they grew up in. Are we now, like, isn't that, doesn't that, are we now like three steps behind? Or I'm just trying to wonder, like, without, like, are we presenting this um, side by side with the gospel? Or are we doing this first? Like, let's say we meet someone, we get past this point, right? We get to this point, and then we present the gospel. Like, I'm yeah, yeah, so that, that, that's a good question. Yeah, and it completely depends on, on who you're talking to and what the conversation is. Um, I think as uh, we had talked about at the beginning, um, I, I like the way Craig put it, uh, apologetics is only necessary. Evangelism is always necessary. We always need to share the gospel with people. Apologetics is only necessary when people don't accept the gospel, which unfortunately happens the vast majority of the time. People hear the message, they might even understand the message, but they don't agree with the message, right? Um, and, uh, and that's why giving reasons for what we believe can be a helpful way to at least help them come to, to see the truthfulness of, of what we're saying or, or consider it more deeply and look into it themselves. Um, as far as when that happens, it completely depends on, uh, on the conversation. If you're talking with a family member or friend, you don't really know what they believe, and maybe you're sharing the testimony with them and you're talking about the gospel, they might hear the gospel first, before you, you know, share any reasons for believing, you know, that God exists or that Jesus is who he said he was or things like that. Um, and, uh, and the uh, opportunity to have that conversation might come from, you know, asking them, you know, what do you believe? Do you, do you believe that, you know, what, what I said, you consider yourself a Christian? You know, if not, what do you personally believe? And, um, and uh, you know, they share that they don't believe that God exists. They don't think that they can know, you know, if God exists or not. Then you can start to, you know, work through some of those things. Sometimes, like when we do the public theology show, we're starting right off with apologetics. We're, we have a question out there that, that, uh, that is usually apologetically related. Some, some are more direct. Some are more indirect. Um, but it's starting with a worldview conversation and then, uh, and then challenging, you know, whatever their false beliefs are. And, uh, um, and then when we can, sharing the gospel um, you know, in, in the midst of that. Um, and we shouldn't think of them as, as totally separate either. Um, so when, uh, when, when we share the gospel with somebody, um, you know, and we're talking about uh, who God is and who we are and who Christ is, um, we don't always have to share that in a way that's completely detached from reasons for believing those things. We can share the exact same message too in a way that also gives people reasons for actually accepting what we're saying. Um, so anyway, that was probably more in-depth, in-depth, uh, you know, response. Probably a longer response than uh, what you might have been looking for. But yeah, it depends on uh, depends on you know the type of conversation that you're having, the person that you're having it with, where they're at spiritually. Yeah. Any other questions on uh, on the argument itself? I kind of like how you uh, wrapped it up with being personal. That one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of learning these steps. But when, like your number two premise, when we said that everything that had a beginning had a cause, and then um, then we said the beginning was being must be uncaused, you have to ask the question, um, you know, does a beginningless being have a cause, right? So in your waterless, frozen water, the answer would be no. But when you flipped it into it had to be personal with the ability to have a will, then the answer is yes. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a couple other reasons too. Um, so 
there's, uh, there's a lot more that could be said about this than, than what I've shared with, you know, tonight. Um, there's other reasons for knowing you know, that, there, that there was only um, uh, one uncaused cause like this, you know, that there aren't multiple beings like this, for example. Um, and, uh, and one of those is a principle that sometimes is referred to in science as Occam's razor, that the most simple answer is, is the most likely one to be true, um, that the more you can reduce uh, unnecessary parts, the more likely you are to get to the correct answer just off of that alone. We wouldn't want to multiply causes without necessity. The most likely, the most plausible explanation for the existence of the universe that had one cause. And then another more philosophically sophisticated argument, which I won't get into tonight, is that a being that's pure actuality cannot be, there can't be more than one being like that. Uh, for philosophical reasons that I won't go into and also not uh, probably prepared enough to explain it in a way you know, that, that would be you know, correct and super helpful for you. So, um, but, uh, but the main idea is that there is uh, more that could be said about this, um, but these eight attributes themselves are, uh, are super helpful. Again, they're not a complete picture of God. No, uh, uh, no single argument will give you a complete picture of God. So for example, um, you know, this doesn't say anything about uh, how God is loving um, or how God is just. You would need additional arguments to demonstrate something like that. Um, but what this does do is get you to something that at least very closely resembles the God that we have in Scripture, right? Um, and, uh, and for somebody who either doesn't believe in God or who is on the fence about it, something like this, giving them good reasons to believe that this type of being does actually exist can be very helpful for them. Very helpful. All right, so in conclusion, you see down there at the bottom of your page, those... Letters are just the attributes that we, can, uh, that we can infer about the first cause, the cause of the universe, through this argument. I'll tell them to you. You can write them down. The first is spaceless, non-physical, timeless, unchangeable, Beginningless, am I going too fast? Uncaused, powerful, and personal. We have a spaceless, non-physical, timeless, uncaused, beginningless, unchangeable, very powerful, personal being that we know caused the universe. It sounds a lot like God. All right, any other questions on this argument? Well, congratulations, you guys made it through. You did it. First argument under your belt. I gave you, oh no, I haven't given it to you yet. Maybe you can take one of these and pass it along. Do that on your own at home. I was going to do that in class. That's a workout exercise for you. Review your notes before doing that and then do the exercise. It's very easy. It's just a simple, you know, either write the one-word answer or the list of attributes or, um, you know, one sentence explaining this, two sentences explaining that. Um, but try to do the exercise. This will give you a chance to practice this on your own. And even after you've filled out that piece of paper, guess what? You can still ask yourself that question again. 
and answer it in your mind if you want additional practice, which I recommend getting, highly recommend getting. But try to review these images in your mind. Oh, I, I guess, I, I don't know if I did this. On the first page, under uh, Proving Premise 2, nothing means not anything. I didn't draw the picture, but when we have this, we're supposed to write nothing on that. Nothing. Basically, that nothing comes from nothing. Nothing, and you can write comes from on the arrow if you want. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. All right, uh, if you're interested in uh, B theory of time or the other philosophical evidence, you can ask me afterwards. I won't keep the rest of you um, staying for all of that. But uh, let me close in prayer. Any final questions before we close? Any final questions? All right, let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this time. We're thankful that you have given us minds to think about the world that we live in and have given us the ability to come to many incredible truths about who you are uh, by using the rational, the rational minds that you've given us to discern and discover the truth. We pray, Father, that you would help us use our minds to uh, increase our own confidence in the truth claims of your word and we would do the same for other believers in our life help them uh, uh, agree with more the truth claims that they already know to be true um, we pray father that you would help us to use uh, help us to use our reason to help those who don't know you yet uh, come to believe that you exist uh, and then come to believe that you really are uh, the god of the bible we pray father that you would help us to get better at this you would help us practice this uh, and that you would make these things clear to us so that we can be more effective ambassadors for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.